0: Good morning. So when Pastor Scott uh, said he wanted to tackle this series on Sermon on the Mount, uh, I was both excited and kind of intimidated by it, honestly. There is, like, so much encompassed in this extraordinary collection of sermons by Jesus, and I told Pastor Scott we could probably hunker down and study Sermon on the Mount for a good year, which we won't. Uh, We won't do that. But there's just so much to study and to ruminate on and to meditate on in this one passage. And what I love about Sermon on the Mount is just how backwards and upside down from life as we know it uh, and expect it to be. And Jesus is teaching us exactly what it means to be a part of his new upside down kingdom. Uh, When Jesus says you are blessed because you realize you need God... That was so foreign to so many and still is sometimes because we have false and unhealthy religions that tell us, like the Pharisees, you have to have your act together before you can be a part of this kingdom. And Jesus begins his masterpiece sermon by saying the exact opposite of that. He says, when you understand you are a failure at spiritual things and you realize you need God because you can't do it on your own and you don't have it all together, you are part of the kingdom. And that is good news. And that changes everything, thank you, yes. And Jesus' own life was a reflection of this, right? Uh, Of this upside down kingdom. He did everything opposite from how the Jews or even his disciples thought that he should and that he would. And I love this quote from Lisa Turkers from uh, Forgiving What You Can't Forget. It says, what they had prayed for was someone to free them from the oppression of the Roman government they got a servant who washed their feet. They wanted a ruler, they got a teacher. Their answer never looked, sorry, their answer never looked like they thought it would. They wanted a justice-seeking king, they got a kind-hearted healer. They thought they were on a journey to Jesus taking the throne, but instead he took up the cross. I'm gonna tell a story now. Our daughter Kylie uh, has always been her own person. And I love that about her. When she was three years old, she was invited to a princess birthday party. And she never jumped on the princess bandwagon. Um, she was she only had princess dresses that were hand-me-downs from her cousin, so we kind of dragged those out and put one on her. And we put on this Elsa dress and asked her if she wanted to take this Elsa doll that a neighbor had given her. She didn't know who Elsa was at the time, um, which my youngest daughter would be horrified by. But Uh, Her response to this, though, when we said, do you want to take this Elsa doll, she said she wanted to take her rubber duck. She wanted to take her rubber duck to a princess party. We need to be that little kid that takes a rubber duck to a princess party. (laughs) As Christ followers, we should stand out from the norm. We should turn the other cheek. We should react differently than how the world says we should. We should live out justice in our lives while extending mercy to others. We should be love and light and salt and peace in the midst of hate and darkness and immorality and conflict. To the point where people say, you're different. Why? Why do you seem so opposite from everyone else? Your responses to life aren't normal or natural. They're supernatural be that kid that takes a rubber duck to a princess party
1: so specifically today we're going to talk about the passages from the sermon on the mount uh dealing with loving your enemies and i think this section works best if you actually picture your enemy so think about them in your mind okay now point
0: to no, don't do no don't do that don't do that seriously
1: that would have been fun. Uh, okay, maybe not. Don't point to them. Um, maybe it's better to be anonymous. Maybe uh, maybe some of you did immediately have somebody come to mind. Uh, maybe there's more of a general person type that comes to mind. Um, either way, this is something that we all deal with. Um, I think it would be good to start with reading the scripture. So, um let's go ahead and do this together actually and why don't we stand this is scripture so if you could stand with me this is matthew 5 43 through 48 and hopefully we can follow along with this awesome graphic here all right here we go you have heard it that it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i tell you Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All right, thank you. You can have a seat.
0: So, an age-old debate stems from this verse and is reference to the original command that was in Leviticus in 1918, which was, who is my neighbor? And from the context of the passage, we can conclude that to an Israelite, a neighbor concludes that they are immigrants, there are other Israelites as well as immigrants who have peacefully joined the community. Your neighbor is anyone in your tribe. Don't we have tribes today? religious versus denomination affiliation, political parties, stances on COVID or masks or vaccines, right? In verse 46, Jesus says that, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Loving those who agree with you is easy. Jesus calls us to consider those outside of our tribe as well. So what does that mean to love our enemy?
1: So many of you know that Mindy and I were missionaries in Senegal for the last for 12 years before coming here, and uh, we have not been um, shy about telling you that it did not end well for us. Um, We the way that we left was uh, with me in full-blown burnout.
0: God has graciously restored him from that, though.
1: Yes, praise God for that. But at the time, there was a great deal of stress. And as we told you before, it was a lot related to um, just a, a, a poor priorities, of uh, uh, an unhealthy balance of priorities, a toxic work environment. Um, and so really what ended up ending our time as missionaries wasn't something you might predict from a third world country, it wasn't religious persecution or illness or lack of funds, it really came down to friendly fire from our own leadership. To put it another way, my boss became my nemesis, and while it was certainly due in part to his actions and his failures, the real reason for my own implosion had more to do with my own Reactions uh, more than it ever did with him. So let me try to explain this with a visual. And for this, I'd actually need help from Pastor Scott. If you could come up here for a second. Pastor Scott is decidedly not my nemesis, but he is my boss. So come on up and stand. Mindy, you could sit for a second. You can stand right over here for me. He has no idea what we're doing here, so this is fun. So in an ideal relationship... Both parties are in communion. They're in agreement. And we have here this representation of God, truth, justice, and rightness. And in an ideal relationship, we're all here together, and we all agree, and we all agree with God. But what happens when my boss treats me poorly, or he overworks me, or he devalues me? He, my enemy, moves away, right? So why don't you back up a little bit? Right? And our natural uh, response is to interpret this accurately by assuming that we are right here with God and our enemy is the one who's separating, right? And as he continues to offend more and more, he moves further and further away, and I stay right here in my rightness, while he is way over there, right? And the more that he offends me, the more right I become, the more my righteous indignation and anger grows, because I'm right, and he's wrong. But is this accurate? All right, thank you. You can have a seat. I actually... I'm really kind of mad at myself because I brought a placeholder for him and I was going to put over there while he left. It was this big stuffed gorilla and I left it in my other car. So just pretend that Pastor Scott's still over there being my enemy or just imagine there's a monkey there or something. But uh, it would have been great. Oh, well. Um, Ten years ago, there was a TED Talk by a woman named Catherine Schultz on being wrong. And she suggests in this TED Talk, that when I disagree with someone, I make one of three assumptions. The first assumption, when I disagree with someone, is that that other person is ignorant, meaning they don't have the same information that I have. And if they did, they would come to the same conclusion that I do. But when you find out that somebody has the same information that you do, and yet they still conclude something different then you assume they're an idiot. They lack intellect. They don't have the mental capacity to come to the same conclusion that I do. But when you discover that someone is informed and educated, and they're still in disagreement with me, then they're evil. Right? When you don't agree with someone who's Informed and intelligent, but there's something else. They're evil. Well, she suggests that there might actually be a fourth possibility as well. And that is, maybe I'm wrong. She asks an important question. What is the difference in how you feel depending on how you're right or wrong? What is the difference in how you feel depending on whether you're right or wrong? The answer is, there's no difference at all. How you feel about your stance, whether it's right or wrong, feels exactly the same. It's like the wily coyote chasing the roadrunner off the cliff, right? He's able to run across the void on thin air with no trouble. It's only when he looks down that he begins to fall. So being right and wrong feels the exact same. So she suggests that you have to consider the possibility that you might actually be wrong before definitively concluding that's the other person. And I feel like I need to tell you guys that I have been that coyote, I've been sprinting across the air, totally unaware of how far off course I've gotten. So one afternoon back in Senegal, and it turns out this was at the height of my burnout. I didn't know that at the time. But I got word that our boss had misinterpreted something that we had done and assigned some pretty hurtful motives to us. I think that it could be argued that we were victims of slander and some character assassination. And when my attempt to clarify the situation backfired and actually made things even worse, I lost it. I flew out of my apartment. I ran upstairs to our roof, which is like a level flat, like a courtyard type place. We had a trampoline and uh, some patio furniture over there. And I grabbed a hold of a wooden chair, and I just eviscerated it. I broke it into a thousand pieces. Nothing was bigger than my hand when I was done with it. And this isn't just me blowing off steam. This is an explosion, and what surrounded it was a spirit of bitterness and anger and hatred. I didn't realize it then and there, but that in that moment, irregardless of what my boss had done to me, I had separated from God, myself. I had strayed a long way.
0: So, how do we love our enemy?
1: Wait, wait, wait. I want to say more. Oh, I got okay. a little bit more here. You do? Yeah. My response to my enemy actually led me to isolation and destruction. And this did not happen overnight. This was an erosion. And it was so gradual that by the time that I realized what my distance was, what my distance from me and God had become, I had done irrevocable damage. So why should we love our enemy? Because Jesus tells us to. But why does he tell us to? Because what loving our enemy does is it keeps us closer to God ourselves. How do we love our enemy? We'll get to that in a second. (laughs)
0: Uh, But first, here's another example from our life. Um, A little while after Mike's blow up, uh, we were kind of in the midst of figuring out whether or not we would return to the mission field. And it was in the fall of 2019, And we went to this Christian counseling and retreat ministry that's geared towards Christian pastors and missionaries, especially ones that have gotten a little beaten up in the process of ministry. And uh, while we were there, I was listening to a message about spiritual warfare and how our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness. Meaning, stop fighting people, they are not your enemy. And in that moment, I heard God speak to my heart, clear as day. I want you to pray for, we'll call him Bob. Um, This was the person Mike was just talking about and uh, the reason why we were considering leaving the mission field after a decade there. Um, He was our enemy, wasn't he? And my very mature response to God's directive was, I don't want to. And then he upped the ante, as he does, just like in Sermon on the Mount, and he clarified further, I don't want you to just pray that he will see the light, and he'll start treating you nicely, and uh, that he will see your side of things, but I want you to pray for his well-being. That's not natural, you guys. You don't want to do that. It goes against our nature. But I did through gritted teeth because when God tells you something that clearly you can't not do it uh I wasn't happy about it but the more I prayed the more I felt like God was able to work on my heart towards this person and I could feel that bitterness and resentment and anger just draining away from me that is what loving your enemy does for you uh and it's not immediate um we still pray for him and uh it's definitely a process all the time and we but if we don't we can get stuck in bitterness and it can hold us hostage and the more it consumes us the more it will control us like Mike up on the rooftop so God's directive to love our enemies I believe is very much less about that person and what they deserve and more about you and how God wants you to have a humble and moldable, healthy heart and soul. It's just not worth trading in our peace, right? And our maturity and our joy and that precious headspace that we have for bitter and resentment to occupy that and let them take root and change us. But in order to do that, and this is, this is really hard to do, we have to separate our healing and our wholeness from the concept of life being fair. Of that person getting what they deserve and our ability to heal and function in healthy christ-like ways cannot be conditional on the other person receiving that the adequate consequences that we see as justice um it has to depend on our obedience and how we can respond in that situation whether we ever see god's justice this side of heaven or not that's hard for us to swallow isn't it we we really do love our justice But it's not my job to fix this other person or demand justice from someone who probably is not likely ever to own up to their part. And so instead of fixating on what people have done to us and what has gone unpunished and demanding justice from God, Mike and I often remind ourselves that hurt people hurt people. So we can ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom And offering as much compassion as our spiritual capacity really will allow us to. And uh, without sacrificing our peace on the altar of their chaos. And I'm not great at this yet. I'm hoping that God will continue developing this in me. But um, if someone has an over-the-top reaction to something that seems disproportional, I try to step back and not react and realize this isn't about me something else is going on here in this person. Um, as never an excuse to allow ongoing abuse, physical or verbal, I will definitely clarify that. But sometimes the people we deem as enemies are people or people who cause us pain or oppose us are probably also in pain themselves.
1: Yeah, not to mention if we have enemies, doesn't it stand a reason that we are probably also someone else's enemy ourselves?
0: Good point. In um, the words of Lisa Turkers, she says, We can't change what we have experienced, but we can choose how the experiences change us. So instead of letting pain morph us into angry and bitter people, we can become more self aware of how we are processing our thoughts and perceptions around loss or unfairness or hurt and redirect those in more life giving ways to become wise, empathetic, an understanding, discerning, compassionate, Christ-like people of strength and humility. That's a, that's a mouthful. But So you may be asking still, how? How do I actually do this when there's so much hurt and anger? And it's not easy. In fact, I'd go so far as to say it's not even possible to do on your own. I can't stem from our grit and determination. I'm going to love this person it's not an emotion right that you can control Um, you have to it's only made possible through cooperation with the Holy Spirit and you have to depend on him to give you strength and perspective that you don't possess on your own so this comes from time in prayer dedicated time in prayer and scripture connection and like Mike said when he isolated himself community community in the body of Christ is so important So with help from the Holy Spirit and other believers, we think you can overcome this natural response. We know you can overcome this natural response and begin to see your enemy the way God sees them. And I think that perspective is what is so important, is how God sees this person. The Greek word for love in this passage is agape and the way christianity.com puts it is when the word agape is used in the bible it refers to a pure willful sacrificial love that intentionally desires another's highest good or their well-being right so loving your enemy means tapping into god's agape love for them not some love you can muster up on your own and we have to start by recognizing that they were created in the image of god too just like you and he lived and died for them as much as he lived and died for you. And so if we can recognize that uh, and see others in this light, we, we can also tap into continual prayer to operate in this unequaled agape love of God.
1: So let's take another look at that scripture that we read earlier, but this time we're going to look at it from the message version, and I'll just read it here. This is from the message, same Matthew five forty-three through 48. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer. For then, you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. That is the supernatural life Jesus calls us to. We're kingdom subjects. Let's live like it.
0: We do want to reiterate, because we're big fans of um, of mental health, <laughs> that there's a difference between loving your enemy and allowing or even enabling abuse. Like I referred to earlier, um, just the other week, as we were driving here, our youngest daughter announced rather loudly and cheerfully from the back seat, "I love everyone in the world except bad guys." And we've been working on the idea of bad guys versus good guys and trying to explain that we have all fallen short and we're all bad guys without Jesus uh, and because of sin and we clearly had a little more work to do with our black and white thinking 4 year old um, but our five-year-old boy might have been starting to grasp some of this because he responds I love the bad guys too because Jesus loves them and I absolutely adored his simple childlike love and faith in that moment. But I felt the need to clarify to him for the sake of his safety and his health, we love bad guys, bad guys, but that doesn't mean we let them do bad things to us, right? Loving them means praying for them and treating them the way we would want to be treated, and I, I just recently had a conversation with my sister who is still back in Senegal, working in this toxic environment uh, just this week. And they have not felt the same release from God to leave the field that we did. And so we ha- still have conversations all the time about how to respond to that leadership um, when they are devalued and seen as dispensable. And just earlier, um, This week, about four days ago, my sister was talking to me and she said that she has been memorizing this verse to pray over those who have been mistreating them. Galatians 1 3 through 4 May God's undeserved kindness and total well being that flow from our Father God and from the Lord Jesus be yours. He's the anointed one who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He has rescued us from this evil world system and set us free just as our Father God desired. And this was in the Passion Translation, and the footnote said, grace was not just a message that Paul taught. It was the way he dealt with deceived people. Even over the confused churches that were mixing works and grace, Paul spoke words of blessing and peace. The word peace in the Hebrew mindset means health, prosperity, peace, and total well-being. When we learn to bless and release undeserved kindness and well-being over those who oppose us, perhaps then they will listen to us. And I had this conversation with my sister, and I had told her the story of when God told me to pray for Bob and his well-being, and she didn't know that story. And so she excitedly pulled up her prayer journal where she had been memorizing this verse about praying well-being over her over people who have opposed her. Um, and I, I could, you know. We had different journeys and different stories, but it came back to the same thing, right, of what God was asking us to do. And we both individually felt God leading us to do that. And we we still don't know what's going to come from this story. Um, By the world's standards, we're losing. Uh, But by God's standards, I think he's shaping us to be more Christ-like if we allow him to. In this upside down kingdom that Jesus is touting, loving your enemy does not mean you'll win or be right or even be vindicated this side of heaven. We lost our jobs and we lost our home and community and purpose and I had family there. Um, But when I was able to let all that go and I I was able to reorient to him and allow my focus to shift to where it really needed to be, i gained what matters infinitely more i got peace from that bondage freedom from that bondage and instead i got this life-giving and life-changing intimacy with christ but i do want to stipulate because this is important that forgiveness empathy and love for those who have caused this harm should not be an open door for them to take advantage of us similarly to what i told my kids about praying for bad guys A Christ-like response releases our need for retaliation, not our need for healthy boundaries. And that's a whole other sermon topic in and of itself. Uh, But the point is, loving your enemies doesn't mean you have to rebuild a relationship with everyone you've forgiven. And just because you are at peace and desire their well-being doesn't mean they're not still toxic. And the fact is, we have never reconciled with Bob. Uh, We love him we continue to pray for him, um, and we forgive him, Uh, but he is still unsafe to us, and so we have set up boundaries in place to protect us from his influence in our lives for our own safe and healthy and peace and well-being of our own, and so you can only do so much in restoring a relationship because it takes both sides to reconcile, and sometimes that doesn't happen. So, I feel like forgiveness and reconciliation are two wildly different, can be two wildly different things. And it's important for us to realize that the forgiveness involves a change in thinking on our part about the offender, which we have control over. Reconciliation involves a change in behavior by the offender, which we have no control over. Forgiveness is a free gift to the one who broke trust, but reconciliation is a restored relationship based on restored trust. We are responsible for our hearts and intentions and perspectives. So as long as we're staying humble before the Lord and asking him to grow us and mature us by keeping our hearts kind and our intentions pure and our boundaries in place, we can find a healthy way to live and love out of our God-created identity as his kingdom subjects. Uh, I'm going to just go to one more quote before I hand it over to Mike because I've been talking for a while. Um, But... I love this quote by Oswald Chambers, and he puts it like this. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not do your duty, but it is do what is not your duty. It is not your duty to go the second mile to turn the other cheek. But Jesus says, if we are his disciples, we shall always do these things. There will be no spirit of, oh well, I cannot do any more. I have been so misrepresented and misunderstood. Never look for right in the other man, but never cease to be right yourself. We are always looking for justice. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is, never look for justice, but never cease to live it.
1: Uh, The journey for me from the edge of the cliff back to what I hope is right next to God's own heart has been a long one. I have taken a few pages out of David's playbook, though. And you probably know King David's story. Um, He had a narcissistic boss, Saul, who may have started out on the right path, but his erosion led him to a point where the Bible says he died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. That was King Saul. Um, To be sure, David had his fair share of enemies, and he had a right to want justice for being treated so wrongly. But a look through scripture shows that David did not seek revenge or justice in the midst of all that pain and anguish that he had experienced, what did he seek? He sought the heart of God. And yes, he complained. Depending on where you where you look, the Psalms have between 40 and 70% lament. <laughs> and I love that. Because he's raw and he's real with God. The difference between me and David, though, is that David complained to God. I complained up on the rooftop all by myself. And that is a huge, huge difference. So what happened to Saul in the end? Did he get what he deserved? Yeah, he did. But God dealt it, not David. What happened to David in the end? Did he get his vengeance, his vindication? No. His son revolted and usurped the throne. But what do we remember about David? more than slang Goliath more than his kingly accomplishments what do we remember he was a man after God's own heart and he was ascendant to the true king of Jesus and that's where we want to be
0: and as we talk about loving our enemies um, similarly to the message I heard when God put it on my heart to pray for Bob was that the real enemy is the villain right not people not flesh and blood I think the enemy hates the word together. And he especially works with great intentionality against anything that brings honor and glory to God. But we are told in scripture that we can take a stand against the enemy, the schemes of the enemy. And Ephesians 6:11 says put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And the word can in the original Greek form is dynastai, which means I am powerful, I have the power. And we aren't powerless when the enemy stirs things up against us or in our spirit and trouble amongst us. But I think the secret is that we need to be aware of this. The power is not in question, but our awareness of it often rises and falls on our willingness to do what God's word says in times of conflict it's often when i don't wanna uh, live out god's word with another person is that when there's an epic defeat of the enemy when we follow his word and do what it says and there's nothing more powerful than a person living what god's word teaches
1: so i would like to make an appeal to some of you and i say this with all love and respect and i hope you can see this as someone who has identified their plank and now has a chance to address a speck if you're sitting here listening and you're thinking that's pretty good i really hope so and so is hearing this maybe you're not listening And I say this with a little bit of urgency, because I was sitting where you are. While someone on stage described me exactly, and I totally missed it. My arrogance allowed me to think, that's for somebody else, not for me. And that's when I was over there. So if you find yourself feeling right and righteous but your spirit is characterized with bitterness and anger I think you need to take a moment and what I would recommend strongly recommend is that you talk to somebody There is no shame in finding somebody, not somebody who just gives lip service and who will agree with you, but somebody who is spirit filled, who is trustworthy, a pastor, a therapist, a close friend, and say, I think I'm getting bitter. What do I do? Because aside from the help of the Holy Spirit, the next most important thing that you can do is get help from someone else. Because when you realize that you're all the way out here on the edge, it might actually already be too late to get back by yourself and you might need help. Okay? And I also want to mention, you see where I'm standing here. You remember where Scott was standing over there? I think a point of this message is that (laughs) we all need that love that Jesus is talking about. The enemy And the enemy. We all need that agape love. And when you're all the way out here, all by yourself, and you need help, well, first of all, what happens to Wiley when he notices where he is? Puts up a little help sign, and then he plummets to the depths. Well, guess who's down there waiting for him? Guess who met me when I fell? Jesus. His love is what got me back. Her love is what got me back. It wasn't my boss continuing to berate me or prove that he was right and I was wrong. It wasn't me thinking, oh, I'm right, so I can crawl my way back. It was his love that brought me back here. So that's a message for you, and it's a message for your enemies as well. His love is what does it.
0: Um, Can I have the worship team come back up as we close? Um, In a sermon on this topic, we listened, we loved Tim Mackey, and uh, he concluded that loving your enemy has got to be one of the hardest things we will ever do. But he said, for those who follow this path, things happen. Martin Luther King Jr. had enemies, and he withstood hatred and violence beyond what most of us could even imagine. And yet... He loved his enemies with the agape love of God. He lived out this upside-down kingdom principle in a way that inspired millions and facilitated a movement that changed history. Of loving your enemy, this is what he said. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral beginning the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Pastor Scott, would you come up here and be willing to pray for us? And uh, can we have some um, of the prayer partners to come up, too, if anyone wants to come and speak after we sing and after our leader uh, leads us in prayer?
1: Amen. Uh, so I'm going to invite you to stand here this morning. I don't know that you could say it any better than they just did. Uh relationships are complicated and difficult and maintaining love is so challenging but i want us to spend some time with jesus that's where we need to come today each one of us uh, bringing our heart to him we'll have prayer partners available if you'd like to come during the song you can if you want to wait and come after the song you can but we do want to uh, make it available for you to receive prayer here this morning and a couple of us will be on this side as well let's let seth lead us and then i'll close this in prayer before we go